You are now listening to The Big Data Beard, an O'Reilly Media partner and community sponsor of Strata Data and AI conferences around the world. Be sure to stay tuned to the end of our show for a special message from our team. And now your host. Hi, I'm Thomas Henson with The Big Data Beard Podcast. I'll be your host today for our episode, but it won't just be me. I have another co-host, Corey. How are you doing today? Man, I'm awesome. Our guest is going to be Bill Schmarzo, the Dean of Big Data. Bill, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, audience, and uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm, I'm very eager for the kinds of questions you're going to throw at me. We'll try to be uh, gentle there. So the first news topic item that we've got for today is comes in from Katie Nuggets. It's, it's an article about the demand for data scientists, and it's pretty much asking, have we hit peak yet? And kind of where is, do we see the peak for demand? So, you know, in any, any bubble that we have, you know, there's always a, a time where, you know, it swells up really fast, but then it, you know, kind of deflates. And so what they were trying to do is, you know, it took about 1,200 different voters and they had them vote on when they think the peak will happen. So it's some people that are in the industry for maybe a small amount of time, but people have been in the industry for a little bit longer, too. And so kind of the consensus there is they say that, you know, they see peak anywhere between the next four to 10 years just from this uh, poll here. Corey, how do you feel about the peak for data scientists and kind of machine learning and, you know, how? how big the market is for, you know, it's been the sexiest career since 2012 and doesn't seem to be dying. What, what do you think about the peak and where the interest is for machine learning? Well, I think it's uh, like anything. I don't think humans are very good at looking out past about four or five years anyway. So we're, we're kind of the putting that fence out there, you know, something that we're kind of comfortable with. We think we can understand. Uh, I think that, you know, the thing I like about Katie Nuggets, they always crack me up when they do these polls. Like it's, you can tell it's run by a bunch of <laughs> statisticians because they're they're really not only curious about the responses that they get, but let's really dig into the underlying meaning of the responses and how they're connected. And I think that the you know the the connection between how long somebody thinks the peak is away versus how long they've been in data science is kind of an interesting correlation. Because I think that those those of you know folks that have been in it for a long time from an AI and data science perspective. Um, I think they're probably a little bit more, uh, even the, the data, I think kind of back this up, but they were like, I think that they believe it's going to happen faster while the folks that are just into it are still very excited that it's, uh, that it's out there, that, that there's a long tail before they start to see the decline. But Bill, are you still, I mean, you're clearly still very highly in demand. Do you think that this findings are accurate? You know, I, I don't think we're going to see demand drop off for good data scientists. I think, I think one of the, when I looked at this article, one of the things that kind of struck me is this, there's this underlying belief that the tools are going to bail us out, that we're seeing, you know, an increasing number of tools out there that are designed to make, create this term citizen data scientists. And I think that's a false profit. I think what we're trying to do is create citizens of data science and that the demand for good data scientists will continue to grow because they're the people who know how to monetize the data. So while this term data scientist can encompass anything from people who are doing BI in many cases or, you know, high level BI to people who are really doing data science work, I think if you really boil this, this curve down and look at what are the people who are really leveraging data science to monetize my data, I think you're going to see that curve grow because I think that curve is really low today. I think the number of people who do that today for effectively is very low, and I think that's going to grow over time. So it's not just about the quantity, it's about the quality. I get it. Okay. Yeah. So being good is a good thing. Yeah. yeah but being good is a good thing and being better is even better. <laughs> I, 
I, I kind of look at it in a different way. I don't even think we've scratched the surface. And I think that even if you're a bad data scientist out there and you're listening, I'm glad that you're listening to the show. We're going to try to give you some tools and help you be a better data scientist at some point. But I also think, I think that there's going to be so much demand and we haven't even scratched the surface that people are just, that are okay. They're going to be in, they're going to be in, you know, employed for quite a long time now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of employers paying a lot of money trying to figure out who's good and who's not. <laughs> you know, I, I think I think the tools out there aren't going to take and make more great data scientists. I think the, the great data scientists are doing it today with leather and stone. Um, I think what the tools can do is some of these um, data science workbenches, for example, will take an average data scientist and make them good. But I got to be honest with you, for the bad data scientists, there's no help. <laughs> I think, I, I, and I, I, I think there's a real mindset there where some people just don't get it, and that's okay. Um, but you know, not everybody can be the shortstop on the team. Some people got to play left field and play catcher. So it, it's it's a specialization task. And some people who won't be good data scientists might end up being very good, you know, data visualization people or data engineers or data architects. So. The people who are really good at quantifying cause and effect, who are really, really good at being able to figure out what variables are actually driving performance, those are the ones who are going to continue to be in demand for the end of time. Yeah, it's yeah. actually kind of a funny uh, segue. So the so the, we, we started looking at the – there was an article posted in Information Week about the the highest paid jobs in tech. And if you, if you kind of go down the list, one of the things that we – Thomas and I were talking about this. It's it's really awesome. It's mind blowing. The number, like the the top paid, like top paying job in tech that is an individual contributor is a big data engineer. Which I think they kind of throw some of the data science parts of that job there. Like, and the top top paying jobs in tech, you you get a bunch of dudes with C's in their title, right? CIO, CTO, CSO. Then you get the V's, the VP of IT. But the next guy down, number five, is literally the big data engineer. So uh, what I think, Bill, what you were saying is if you've got good, if they're good at finding those cause and effect, you can make a whole lot of money doing this stuff. Yeah, the, the, the best data scientists at, at Google make tons of money because they're the best data scientists. And, and, and Google is an expert at monetizing data. By the way, I thought that, I thought that article really... I, it lost credibility for me immediately when it didn't even have the chief data officer on the list. Right? How do you how do you miss that role? In particular, as we think about organizations who are chartering that role to become more efficient at um, monetizing data. I, I've, I've written several blogs on the chief data officer role because it's the wrong title. It's it's not the chief data officer is not like a mini CIO. It should be called the chief data monetization officer. The job of the CDO is to monetize data. And that's probably the single most important role of all the roles there. And it doesn't even make the list. So um, this this article sort of, I already it already kind of skewed my perspective because you're missing the single most important role that organizations care about, which is the, the guy or the gal who's, who's chartered with monetizing the data. So anyway. Yeah, but are there... Are there that many people that are actually doing that job right now? That's the because I, I get that right. I, I get that a chief data officer is an is an important pivotal function in an organization to help them along that that curve of monetization. But are there that many people doing it that we would in a study like this where we're studying you know high paying jobs? Are there enough of them, and are they just not are they not paid as well as some of these other jobs? Well, they I I think it's I think it's reflects the misnomer on what a chief data officer is. 
I think they've totally missed it. Most organizations have brought in and they've taken somebody who was in, who was basically you know in the CIO ladder or the path, and they they put them over in the CDO role and said your job is to manage the data. Well, no, no, no. Their job should be to monetize the data. And if you if you look at digital media companies, they have a role called chief revenue officer, whose job is to and Google's got a chief revenue officer, and Facebook does, and Yahoo does, and their job is to figure out how do I make money off this data. Well, why don't we have people like that sit in every organization who has this growing wealth of data who's been asked and they're all they're all fermenting around how do I monetize my data? Well, you don't have any organization who owns that task. You want well, you want magic to happen? So it's to me it's it just it just it's reflective of the fact that people are missing the bigger picture. That it's not just about grabbing and maintaining data, that the end is how do I monetize it? Yeah, no, I agree. I think part of it too, and one of the things that stuck out to me in this, and so you know, just to give credit out there, it's it's an article from Information Week Weekly, and it's called the 15 highest paid tech jobs. And so I think part of it is it's the tech because I didn't see data scientists on there any, either too. And I, and I think you know we we got the big data engineer on there at number five, uh, twelve is the data architect, and you have your DBA in there at fourteen. But I think part of the problem is they don't see the you know chief monetization officer or chief data officer, maybe that's not really registering as a tech job just because like we're not seeing the data scientists on here, but we know since 2012, it's been one of the sexiest careers out there. Right. And we know that it's in huge demand. So I wonder, I wonder kind of looking, you know, if we were able to look under the covers of some of this technology, kind of what jobs did they see that weren't specifically a tech job, which, man, you know, it's the, the line's really skewed in what, every, you know, what, what tech jobs are. Cause I think, Everything involves technology that we do. You know, even, you know, you can make the case that even your chief marketing officer has to be, you know, have technical skills and, you know, falls into that role as well. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. It's, uh, it's one of those. <laughs> the, the truth is that tech is so ingrained in business that it's hard to, it's hard to decouple the two. But I think, Thomas, I see where you're headed. Like, this is like the pure tech operator roles rather than the connected to business, which candidly is a great, conversation for uh that's why bill's doing so he's so busy is because he has so many conversations about <laughs> marrying the two between business and tech so bill maybe we uh maybe we jump into it and let you uh tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're up to these days sure thanks so um i'm the 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 chief technology officer for dell amc's big data and iot consulting practice which really means it's a fancy way of saying I spend all my time on the road talking to and working with customers. By far, the best job in the industry. Because I get a chance to work with people who are wrestling with these questions all the time. Um, I also have the advantage that I, I teach part-time at the University of San Francisco School of Management. I teach a class there called the Big Data NBA. And the, and the purpose or the charter of that class is how do we teach tomorrow's business leaders to embrace analytics as a business discipline. That is, that, that analytics is no longer the realm of what IT does, that for these successful organizations, um, you know, they're gonna, business leaders need to embrace analytics as a business discipline. They need to become citizens of data science um, and understand how data science helps them make more money. Um, History-wise, I've, I've been in the data analytics space for God knows how long. I got started back in the 1980s um, doing data warehouse and BI. I had one of those, you know, Forrest Gump moments in your life where, you know, right place, right time, not because I'm tall or good looking or from Iowa. You know, every time, sometimes in life, you just get lucky, right place, right time. And in 87 to 88, I was lucky. I was running the project at Procter & Gamble where we brought in 
uh, Walmart's point of sales data for the first time in to do analysis on it, which really sort of launched the whole data warehouse and BI space. Um, so I spent 20 some years in the BI data warehouse space, know it very well. I'm a star schema guy, worked closely with Ralph Kimball for many years. And then about 14 years ago, I was recruited out of business objects where I was the vice president of analytic applications. I was recruited by Yahoo to build out their advertiser analytics, which was designed to how do we help advertisers optimize their spend across the Yahoo ad network. And that was a, that was a water stone moment for me or, you know, a, a, a milestone moment in the sense that everything that I had learned about BI and data warehousing was now wrong. And that everything and how I approached behind data warehousing, I had to unlearn because I moved into a world where I wasn't dealing with gigabytes of data. I was dealing with petabytes of data. And I wasn't dealing with, you know, a uh, hundred dimensions. I was dealing with a million dimensions. And, and so, you know, 500 million customers a day come into Yahoo and understanding what ad to show them at what time. Everything I knew about the approaches I'd done before, the whole idea of slice and dice just didn't scale. So, um, I, for the last several, almost the last decade and a half now, I've been spending time working in this world of big data and data science. And now it's all machine learning, artificial intelligence and deep learning and neural networks and pick your favorite technology. But it's really all has always boiled down to one, one conversation, which is how do I make money out of my data? How do I use my data to make me more money? So, um, that's kind of the role that I do. And I'm, like I said, I'm very fortunate. I get to spend all my time with customers who are at various stages in their big data business model maturity. Um, and it gives me a chance to not only understand where they are and their challenges, but also gives me a chance to work with them to help advance them along that maturity index. That's awesome, Bill. Um, and I know we've had some different conversations before in the past about, you know, some of your time at Yahoo. But just just for the listeners out there, I mean, it's so cool. I mean, you were you were at Yahoo you know, showing people how to make more money, right, out of the data that you had at the same time that Hadoop was being, you know, mainstreamed and incubated and open source. Can you can you kind of give us a little background on what that was like to be a part of? I mean, there were just so many smart people at Yahoo at that time and all the things that came out of there. I mean, it's just just so amazing. Yeah, there was a group at Yahoo called SDS. I think it was for Strategic Data Solutions. And um, when that group kind of got disbanded, there's about 400 people in that group. And they were amazing. It was the it was the best, brightest bunch of people I'd ever worked with. Um, and when that group disbanded, you can see across you know Cloudera and Mapbar and Hortonworks and all these other big data and analytic companies. You can see you know Greenplum and such. You can see all these different or these people sort of went out and they and they seeded this whole big data tr- uh, uh, conversion, this whole big data craze was seeded by what was going on at Yahoo and how when they dissolved that group, how all these really smart people landed in spots and started to grow, you know, trees started to grow everywhere. Um, as, a, as a user, I'm, I'm not a technology guy, but the things that I could do with Hadoop and the analytics we had around that, to me, were staggering. I mean, I could build detailed profiles on every visitor. I could know, you know, what sites they'd been to, what they were most interested in, what they'd clicked on, what keywords they'd searched on. I knew so much about them. And it, and when you know so much about every individual customer, then your ability to make really strong recommendations, like what ad do you think that person's most likely to want to see? Because if I can make the, if I can improve that by 0.1%, it's worth tens of millions of dollars to the organization. So the, the, a lot of the concepts that I had brought to Yahoo about how BI and data warehousing worked were wrong in this new world, 
But the ideas about how you monetize were still spot on. So while I lost a lot of the my technology footing for many years before I finally understood you know, the, all the concepts behind data science and big data, the monetization concepts became even more convincing. I was even more convinced of the ability to monetize that data in unique ways. So, I, so, I, in, I, your, in, your, so Bill, in your role out there, and you, you're talking about your, you know, kind of broke the way that you saw the world as BI and data warehouse. And so you've been, you know, involved, you know, in this part for, you know, at least 10 years. So when you're out there talking with customers, do you, do you find yourself having to evangelize to some extent? Now I know, you know, about the monetization, but saying, Hey, the way that we look at, you know, business intelligence or data warehouses, think about it differently. Now you can have vast amounts of data and process it. Do you find yourself, you know, kind of having to break that mold and kind of, you know, show people, Hey, you know, I was, I was in your, I was in your seat, but the way that you're thinking about it is so vastly different now. Are you kind of evangelist for that to some extent? Clearly. In fact, what I, what I, what I like to do is I like to, when the customer sort of talks about, because when we meet with the customers, they want to talk about their environment first. And more times than not, they're talking about their BI and data warehouse environments and their analytics environment, which are really, you know, trend reports and, and very loose term analytics. And then I'll pause and I'll say, do you want to report or do you want to predict? Do you want to report on what customers left or do you want to predict on which ones are likely to leave? Do you want to report on what products are likely to break down or do you want to predict which ones are so you can prevent them? And you start the, the mindset, this whole concept of how do I get people, how do we get people to think like a data scientist, to stop thinking about reporting on what happened, but predicting what's likely to happen so I can prescribe actions so I can prevent. Now that's, there's, it's a mindset change that if you can get people to make that mind shift, that change in mind shift, the technologies are all out there to help them move along. There's technology to help you better predict. There's technologies to help you better prescribe. And there's technology helping you better prevent. But if you don't have that mind shift first, if you're still thinking that data and analytics is about reporting on what happened, and you're going to run your company using a rearview mirror, no, no. You, it, and so that's by far. I tell you guys, by far the biggest challenge is how do I get organizations to make that mind shift? Because once they do it, and I've seen this happen where the light bulbs go off and they go, oh my gosh, I get it, right? I'm, try, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to report on, the, on my six-year graduation rate. I'm trying to predict what my six-year graduation will be next year and understand the data and the variables that might impact that so I can actually prevent students from dropping out, prevent students from staying longer. It's just that once you can make that mind shift, everything else falls in place. So it's a mindset shift, obviously, amongst the 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 people in the organization but there's there's something that i feel like might be sort of uh missing and i think i think that's where where you spend probably a lot of time is i i as a business practitioner you know whether i'm a you know a college counselor and you talk about graduation rates or high school whatever and i'm trying to figure out how to improve that shifting from hey i can tell somebody in it that i want to report to so i can look at some is a is a much simpler or I guess more germane thing that IT and our and our and our even our data, you know, our DBAs and everybody have been they've been skilled to to achieve, right? But to yep. shift and start to say, hey, I need to understand how to predict these things, that's that's organizationally a very big challenge to go from, hey, I'm a I have business acumen that I th- I th- think right hypotheses about like i think this might be influencers 
how do how do you like it's besides just the mindset shift that somebody says hey i want to predict versus go over the rearview mirror what are the what are the big things that organizationally they have to do to actually enable when they have the light bulbs go off how do you get them organizationally to be able to respond to those new kinds of requests those new kinds of you know ways of running the business so uh, what i'm going to explain to you is so st- simple that it's really hard to understand why everybody doesn't do it. Because the companies who do this, once they've made that this, this shift, execution is simple. And what we focus in on is, what are your company's key business initiatives over the next 12 to 18 months? Are you focused on increasing same store sales? Are you focused on improving quality of care in a hospital? Are you trying to improve on-time delivery if you're a logistics company? What are you trying to achieve from the business side? Right, that's the starting point, and the reason why that's an important starting point because because there's money attached to that. If I can reduce uh, the late deliveries by ten percent to some companies, that may be worth a hundred to two hundred million dollars a year. Right, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. So it has to start with the business conversation of what's important to the business because if you don't have that. It's nearly impossible to figure out how to monetize your data and analytics if you don't know what problem you're trying to solve. Let me take it one step further. <clears throat> Let's say your problem is customer, customer retention. You've got a bad customer retention problem, and you're trying to find a way to improve retention by 5%. And it's worth some dollar amount to the organization. What we then do is we work with the business stakeholders to identify the decisions they need to make in order to support customer retention. And so, for example, they'll say, we've got to make decisions regarding which customers are at risk. And oh, by the way, not only is it useful to flag what customers are at risk, but what's the predicted value of each of those customers? If I have a customer who's at risk, whose predicted value to the organization is negative, I might want to let them go, right? And then you're going to make decisions about, well, what kind of offers do I give them? And what channels do I reach them through? And what time of day? And how do I retarget? And right, so all of a sudden, if you focus on the decisions, if you focus on the decisions, the data science team knows how to optimize decisions. You want to flag at-risk customers, the data science team will help you do it. They will help you figure out, and by the way, the business stakeholders have to be involved in that process throughout because there's a very key aspect of that process and that's built on this very simple definition of what is data science. So here's my definition of data science that I share with my students and the executives who I get into these workshops. Data science is about identifying those variables and metrics that might be better predictors of performance, period. That's it. Whether you're using machine learning, supervised or unsupervised, or neural networks, or whatever, that's all I'm trying to do, is to find variables and metrics that might be better predictors of performance. If I know what decisions I'm trying to support, and I've got a data science team collaborating with the business team to brainstorm what data they might need, I've got a winning combination. Let, let, me, let me kind of, at the risk of going too long on this topic, let me, let me take you through an exercise I take my students through to show you the, the power of thinking like a data scientist. So I take my, my MBA students and I say, okay, you've been hired by United Airlines. I'm sorry, it was the only job available. It was either that or be homeless. So, and your first job, your first job is to forecast how many passengers are going to fly from San Francisco to Paris next month. And then I say, what data might you need? 
might being the key phrase, and I'll explain might in a second here, but what data might you need in order to make that forecast? And so I break them into groups of three or four, and they, they break off, and they kick their post-it notes in their, in their flip chart, and they're, they're, they're brainstorming data, and, they, and after about 10 minutes or so, I bring them all back, and I say, okay, now, share with me what data you might need in order to make that forecast. And it always starts off kind of the same way. Well, how many people flew last month and flew the last 12 months and flew the same month a year ago, same month two years ago, you know, flew by day, by time of day, you know, all the kind of transactional foundational stuff. By the way, most of that transactional foundation stuff is found in your data warehouse, right? It's already there. You already have it. You've been doing reports on it for, you know, for years, if not decades. Then there's this kind of this pause and you can literally start seeing the light bulbs go off. And somebody will say, well, what's the exchange rate? Has it changed in the last 12 months? And somebody will say, well, you know, how many weekends in the month? How many days in the month? Are there any holidays in the month? And somebody else will say, well, are there any special events going on in Paris? And somebody else will say, are there any strikes planned in Paris? And, and when was the last terrorist attack? And how many Google searches were there on prices of tickets? And how many Pinterest pins were there on hotels? Right. So all of a sudden you have this divulging of all these different data sources that might be useful, might be in the key phrase, because you want to capture as many ideas as possible because we don't know for certain which variables might be the most predictive. The people who will then tell you which data sources are the most valuable, are the most predictive, are the ones that are going to give you the most insights, are the data science team. And they'll go through and they'll do all their magic. They'll figure out which of 50 different neural network technologies to be using to mine, to deep learn this technology, and they'll do the machine, right? And they will come back and say, oh, these are the five or six most predictive variables, right? That's what they do. So when you combine the business stakeholders and let them brainstorm what data they might need, with a data science team who will tell you which data sources are actually most predictive, you have a winning combination. And you have results. Not only do you have better results, but you have the most difficult thing to achieve in the big data data science conversation is you now have business stakeholder buy-in. No, that's that's man, that's amazing, Bill. That that that's great stuff there. It sounds like a, what you're saying is it's, it's a team sport, right? Data science and, you know, coming together to find out, okay, what the business problem is and then what are these factors? I mean, it's not, it's not just a, hey, we need this solved and you give it to your data scientists and they go off in a room and don't talk to anybody and close the door. I mean, is that, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of what we've said about developers for a long time, you know, where we started getting into this more agile development and, you know, getting everybody in a room and talking together and really trying to figure these things out together. Yeah, it's, it's, it is certainly a team sport. The, the clients we see that have the most success, and by the way, they, they, the, the marginal improvement is dramatic. We're not talking, you know, three to five percent. We're talking three to five X are the organizations where the business and the data scientists collaborate closely. And they under, and by the way, that's the real key is that can we get the business stakeholders to really understand that analytics is a business discipline? So it's as much a business discipline as accounting and finance and economics are. We're not going to make you learn, you know, how to program in, in, you know, Perl or Java or R or Python. No, we're not going to make you do that. But we want you to be part of this process because we need to understand the decisions you're trying to make and the value of those decisions. We need to understand what data sources are most valuable. And we need to understand at the end of the day, is, are the models we're coming up with effective enough for you to act on? No, so um, I, follow, I follow a lot of kind of what you're saying. And I, I tilt more to the data engineer side. So, you know, I'm, I'm a technologist kind of working with the tech and that's, you know, kind of where I started off in my career. But one of the things that I've always found really, really great about what you're saying is like, you know, even for a data engineer, you need to understand what the business value is. And so, you know, I see a lot of the content and I follow, you know, the blogs that you're putting out and man, you're really publishing a lot. But uh, 
I mean, it's just, it's really helpful for the data engineer to say, Hey, you even need to know how to explain the problems, right? So you want, you, you want to use all these cool technologies. You want to be a part, you know, of what's going on, whether it be with Hadoop or Spark or that community, but to be able to get your projects sold and get your projects signed off on, you have to explain why there's business value to it. So. Yeah. Well, you said it really well. You said it's a team sport, right? I, I've got to have a data engineer and a data architect who knows how to go get the data and put it into an architecture that allows me to go easily access it. If my data science team, ha- my data scientist needs to do that, then they're not doing the, with it, with it, what they need to do. And what does a data science, data scientist do? The single most important thing they do is they quantify cause and effect, right? They build the analytic models that basically tell you which variables are most predictive. They quantify cause and effect and they measure goodness of fit. They only do two things, right? Two really hard things to do, but they do it. I want, I want my data engineers and data architects helping to build the right platform, getting the right data form. I want data visualization people there using prop tools like Tableau and you know, my favorite ggplot2 and trying to figure out what data variables are moving together. I want a human-centric design person involved in the team who's going to help me understand how the analytic results are going to be rendered to my users to make them actionable. It's a team sport. And so when I start thinking about that, it's just like a baseball team, right? I can't have my shortstop playing first base, pitching and catching. It isn't going to work, right? Different skill sets, different people. So it's no different for the data science team. It's a team sport of which the business people have to be on the team, as well as any other business constituents. You've got to have them on the team. Yeah, no. And like I was saying, you know, a lot of the stuff that you put, you know, your with your blogs and everything, you know, I try to encourage people whenever I'm talking to them. It's like, you know, what can I, you know, because a lot of people ask, you know, I have other developers or data engineers that are saying, okay, what should I do? What's kind of my role? And I, and I kind of basically put it down to them. It's like, hey, you know, there's three different roles. If we think about it, you have your visualization, you have your data engineer, then you have your data scientist. And each one has their own lane. And, you know, there's some bleed over, but I still think there's value. And I think, you know, for the data engineer, you do need to know and understand the why of the projects that you're doing. And you, and you need to have some somewhat of an understanding about what that data scientist is going to do. And then also the data visualization person too. But I mean, and that's, you know, with, with a lot of the content that you're, that you're uh, doing on your blog and stuff. I mean, how do you, how do you have so much time to create so much content? <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to understand that, um, you know, God gave me two ears and one mouth. Um, I listen to our customers and they, they tell me um, my stuff's only, only interesting because my customers are interesting. I will be honest with you. I mean, well, Almost all of the topics that I come up with come from customer conversations, questions they ask, problems they've got. It's, it's, if you, if you stay close to the customers and you're really trying to help them. And by the way, sincerely in my heart, I want my customer to be successful. I want them to have success. I want them to be successful. And, you know, and by the way, I want to be linked to that success. I want them to know that, hey, Bill Schmarz will help me be successful. I want, if you listen to your customers, they will tell you what they need. Um, They'll also tell you what they want, and I'm less interested in what they want. I want to focus on what you need. So you'll get a lot of, I think this is what happened in the early days of big data, right? You went out and you went out and bought Hadoop, and you threw some data on it, and you hired some data scientists, right? And you put it on some storage and some servers because that's what the customer wanted to do. And the technology community was more than happy to blindly follow along and do that. That's not, that's what they wanted, but it's not what they needed. What they needed was somebody to come in and help them figure out how am I going to monetize this data? How am I going to take this data to use it to make better decisions? How am I going to improve retention and attribution and acquisition? How am I going to improve the business? We, we, we didn't listen. 
well, because we, we, we listened to what they wanted and we blindly fell al- alongside them instead of taking the time to be a, a business partner and say, no, this may be what you want, but what I hear is what you need is this. And when we focus on what they need and what they're trying to accomplish, the whole thing, the whole conversation changes. My, my relationships with most of my clients are wonderful because we talk about their business. Yeah, so it makes me laugh because the what you just said there's uh, made me think of a, a one of my favorite uh, Henry Ford quotes, which is if I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have told me a faster horse, <laughs> right? And, so, and yep, it's, and it's it's kind of it, right? So you you have these customers that you know because everybody the norm was hey technology is going to solve the problem, just invest in the latest new technology. You know that's what we were the, we were asking for, and that's what the technology community gave them was basically faster horses, right? You could, with Hadoop, you could handle larger data sets than you could ever handle with a SQL database, right? But it, I, I like where you're going, where it wasn't necessarily what they needed, which was how do you connect using the technology to drive the business outcome? So I, I've got to ask, so you work in a consulting uh, organization, right? That goes out and and I'm guessing, right, part of what consulting does is you have smart people that can come in and deliver on the things that you're evangelizing, um, yep. what are the, what are the specific sort of like offerings in consulting? Like, how do they, how does a, a, how does a customer engage with you? Like, what does that engagement look like in terms of, and not, not obviously specifics, like, oh, we sell them three hours of this now, but I mean, at a macro, how do they engage with you? And what's the process for taking advantage of what you're talking about? And as it relates to actual consulting offers? Sure. So Customers come to us in with one of two problems, and this is this is generally speaking. There's there's a little more obviously to this, but customers have one of two problems: either they're trying to do data monetization and they have no idea what the hell they're doing, or their data lakes are not performing. And by the way, those are two somewhat related. In fact, they are very related, but they're coming from two different perspectives. And so the, the second one I'll hit first is we have a lot of organizations that have built data lakes, multiple data lakes, and they're not getting any value out of it. And the first thing I say is, when I hear the word, I hear the word data lakes, I see you got a problem because you're replicating the same problem we had with data warehouses. We didn't have one data warehouse. We had multiple data warehouses and data marts and spread marts. And we created this, this environment where the business, we taught the business users not to trust the data. The biggest, the biggest flaw in data warehousing is that we taught users not to trust the data because the data was dependent upon what it came from. Huge mistake, right? We sent, we sent data warehousing back a decade because we couldn't standardize. And by the way, we couldn't respond quick enough in a data warehouse to the customer's data needs. We just couldn't. You had to build a schema first. And the schema was highly architected for trying to make a stupid thing run on, on, on databases that were designed for transactional systems, not analytical systems. But that's a topic for another series of beers and podcasts. But so... Um, Problem number one is customers have a data lake and they don't know what to do with it. It doesn't scale. It doesn't meet their business needs. And so we have a whole series of offerings that really guides, you know, an advisory service, an assessment, a proof of technology that really design to take and their data lake from a stack of technology to an elastic data platform to a collaborative value creation platform. I call that last one data lake 3.0 where your data lake now is a collaborative value creation platform that's a repository for your data and analytic digital assets that I can reuse across multiple use cases, that I can monetize across multiple use cases. So entry point number one is the data lake. They've got a data lake. It's not working. How do we help them? 
Okay, we got we got services to help them do that. We can take them from where they are to where they need to be in order to be able to drive you know, monetization opportunities. The other conversation is really around monetization. How do I monetize my data? And this is an interesting one, guys, because what it typically starts off with is I'm trying to sell my data. Arrgh, wrong approach, right? And I'm going to go old school back on you, and I'm going to go back to Adam Smith and his book, Wealth of Nations, written in 1776. And Adam Smith in that book talks about value creation in two ways. One way he talks about it is called value in exchange. That is, what is an asset worth in my ability to sell it or barter it with somebody else? And when people start thinking data monetization, the first thing they're thinking about is, what can I sell my data for? I mean, and companies aren't in the data business. Most companies are. You just got to see, if a company's not in a data business, you want to scare their pants off and just say one word. You say Equifax, right? And they turn all pale white. No, you don't want to be in the business of monetizing, of, of creating value through, through exchange. Adam Smith also talked about creating value through use. How do you use your data to drive better business outcomes? That's where we focus in on. In order to do that, to have that data monetization conversation around value and use, it has to start with key business initiatives. It has to start with use cases. It has to start with what decisions are you trying to make? What business outcomes are you trying to optimize? So our consulting firm has ability to take, um, our consulting group has ability to take either one of those tracks. But they all are designed to get us to a point where we can take and monetize our data on a platform, a data-like platform that's elastic scale out and allows us to create this value, this collaborative value creation platform. By the way, that term collaborative value creation platform isn't my term. That came from a, a series of conversations with the IMF. Again, smart customers asking smart things, demanding smart things. We all get a chance to learn from them. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, actually, it's... Um... It's interesting you said the, that one of the things that organizations find out is that their data may actually be less valuable than they think in terms of when they think in terms of exchange. I was blown away. I, I spent the last uh, three weeks in, in Asia and in the Southeast, Southeast Asia and, and Australia where I, I dealt with a ton of customers that had that exact thing in mind, which is the, the value exchange conversation. <clears throat> Do you actually see, are there companies that are making money and that sort of their value of the data is in the exchange of where they're selling it. Cause I get asked that constantly like, Ooh, if I collected this data, how, who could I sell it to? So selling data is a very specialized business and companies like, you know, AC Nielsen and, and Axiom and Equifax and such, they, they, they are geared to do that. They have um, processes for bringing data in, cleansing it, aligning it, packaging it. They got Salesforce and knows how to sell data. They got marketers on a marketing data. They know how to do version control and upgrades. They've got, in most cases, they have security and, and you know liability coverage and things like that, regulatory coverage and such. That's not something your average company is going to be able to pick up, right? Those are specialized companies. And when a company talks about, I want to monetize my data, it's like, well, do you have a Salesforce? You know how you're going to price it? How are you going to, what kind of upgrades are you going to have, right? What, what's the maintenance stream look like? And they have no ideas because they're not in that business. So, so, and by the way, at the end of the day, your data is actually worth a lot more to you than it is to them because by the time you remove all the PII and HIPAA information on your data, it's interesting but it's more interesting to you if I know what behaviors Bill Schmarzo is doing. You know, let's just let's just sit in our, sit in Amazon's world for a second. Amazon has done a masterful job of learning everything they can about every individual customer, right? Just masterful, and um, they they leverage that 
to be able to um, you know, predict what products you might want so I can show you when you're on my site what products you might also want to buy. Right? Great, right? They, they've done that collaborative filtering. They're the master of that for a long time, but they've, they've gone one step further. Right? One of the things that they do, you know, now they have these depots in certain zip codes, and they can put products in those depots with a high degree of confidence that somebody in that zip code is going to buy that product. How do they do that? They forecast at every individual customer level what products you might want and then aggregate that up. And when the aggregation gets to a certain level, they can safely say, hmm, that that zip code, there's enough people there that are going to want to have HP printer ink. I'm going to put HP printer ink into that depot. So when you order it, it's going to show up, you know, two or four hours later or with drones, it's going to show up 30 minutes later, right? So that that very detailed profiles is something organizations can do themselves that they can't give to somebody else without violating PII and HIPAA and other sort of of rules. So the real value in their data doesn't isn't the overall market trends, it's the value at the individual level. And I'd like to say that big data is not about big. Big data is about small. It's about us learning as much as possible about each individual customers, their behaviors, their tendencies, propensities, their inclinations, their interests, their passions, their affiliations, their associations. Learn as much as possible about them so I can better serve them. No, that's great, Bill. I mean, that's what you're talking about, really, when you're talking about, you know, being able to make sure that you have, you know, whether it be printer ink or wherever you need it in that regional location, because there might be a run on it. It's what we talked about a long time ago, you know, in your business classes with just in time manufacturing, right? But you're taking it to the suppliers. And so, you know, one of the big things in the last two to three years has been like, hey, man, I want a drone to be able to deliver things, right? You know, or, you know how's the regulations going to happen? You know, is the FFA, you know, FAA going to allow for drones to deliver your my Amazon packages. Well, I mean, those drones can't fly all the way from Seattle to I live in <laughs> Alabama, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> we we exactly. have to make sure they're regionally there, right? And I mean that I mean, even other concepts, and you take out the drones, other concepts where they have, you know, these uh kiosks or mobile kiosks where you're able to go and see, you know, and be able to pick up your packages, you know, in your city, especially in these dense cities, right? Like if you, you know, New York City, for for example, you know, they would almost kind of like how you have food trucks, but they have Amazon trucks, right? And to know, yep. but you have to know what to put on there, right? If nobody needs the printer ink or nobody needs new headphones, why would you put that on there? You're, you're, you're wasting that product space. And it's more than the competitiveness that you see, you know, when they talk about shelf space in, you know, grocery stores, supermarkets or, or whatever there. So, yeah, I mean, you have to be able to know what that, what to put on the product, but you have to know the business value, right, for it too. And so, so I was going to ask, what are the, what are the things when you talk about like that connecting the, the business value and that, that consulting process, um, how, like, are you seeing that the students that come through your MBA program, are they like, are they your best, like your best contacts whenever you like, are they going out into the industry and that, you know, are you creating like this, this, this army of folks that are connecting business value, or are you seeing other folks like besides just the ones you talk to and that you help get the light bulb go off? How are people starting to learn this stuff? Like, how are they like, how, what organizations, is there some sort of like unifying trend that you see across the people and the companies that you deal with that are actually getting this quicker? Like, Oh, man. Um, I am trying to create Schmarzel's private army. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> to, to evangelize the, the value of data in organizations. And, um, you know, unfortunately, um, they've, as I talk to my students after they've gone in the real world, you know, they run into the quagmire of the bureaucracy of large organizations, right? And, 
And uh, to a certain extent, this may sound overly harsh, but I've, I've given up on my generation. Um, I think that the, my generation has, and my generation is the, is the BI data warehouse generation, where we were more than happy to report on what happened and thought we had achieved success. The next generation is, is demanding more, and the millennials. And part of that is that millennials have experienced what analytics is about. Think about how their lives are driven by recommendations, whether it's Amazon or Netflix or Spotify or eHarmony or Waze or whatever. They, like their, entire, their entire life is now built around very detailed analytics that helps them live their lives better. That, those experiences have changed their expectations of what they want out of a corporation. And I think as those people, as those millennials start to progress up in the organization, they're going to bring that to the business. I Many CIOs I've talked to, they're hopeless. They are just marking time until they can retire. Um, you know, they, they rode the wave of data warehouse and BI to, to get where they've gotten. And now they're more concerned about blocking data lakes and data science than they are about promoting it. Um, sorry to be so harsh, but we, there's too many CIOs who have outlived their usefulness. Um, and my hope is that the millennials, I probably won't be here to see and experience that, but the millennials are going to, because they have a different experience and different mindset, um, are going to be able to really understand about the power of analytics to really help their customers be more successful. Yeah, that's really, I wanted to hear that the millennials were the, the best, the best guy, the best ones to help you drive it forward. That's, uh, that's going to make a handful of folks that are part of the show. Very, very happy that you just said that. Um, so I, I got to ask, so when the, you, you're teaching these classes at the, is it, the, you said the University of San Francisco, right? Yep, that's right. Go Dons. Yeah, there you go. The Dons? What is that? The Don. uh, Dominicans? I don't know. I, that's a good question. I should know that, shouldn't I? I didn't mean to put <laughs> oh, That was the hardest question you had on the entire <laughs> It was, yeah. I mean, now I got to look it up. Now my Stumped th- him. <laughs> they're not going to know what the Dons are. I think that's like uh, some sort of religious thing. I'm going to have to look it up on uh, on Google really quick. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so, so I got to ask, how did you, so how did you, how did you end up teaching? That's, that's an interesting, I think for a lot of us that are in, in technology and, and if, if you have a proclivity towards, you know, dealing with customers and speaking and, and content creation, a lot of things that you're doing, I think that a lot of, you know, a lot of us are kind of into that feels like a, it feels like a, a, a one while simultaneously a natural progression, also a very weird and like almost backward one. I don't know. How did you, how did you end up doing that? Well, I was I was starting to do guest lectures um, at a lot of different universities across the U.S. Um, my my books um, have been adopted by many uh, universities as part of their both MBA programs and some of them actually part of their engineering programs. So I had um, sort of a natural way to to speak to people. First, the first book in particular kind of opened the door, um, and then I did a guest lecture at USF. Um, I had a chance to meet the the fellow who was the head of the business in. Uh, analytics uh, college there. Um, we hit it off well. He wanted me to do a class. We did a class. It was inc- very successful um, and just kind of took off from there. Um, it's It's been a marvelous relationship because it allows me, you know, you know it forces me to simplify. The, the students, when I ask the students in the class, how many people here know what a data warehouse is? No one raises their hands. No one cares. Right? No one cares. And but you start asking questions about, you know, what is your most um, um, impressive experience on the Internet? Oh, you know, they love how how um, 
Amazon can tell me what I need to do or what Netflix can pick movies for me. Or, you know, they, they talk about their experiences from organizations that have mastered leveraging data and analytics to really improve the customer experience. They understand that. So they, it's, it's forced me to think very hard about what's really important and how do I take concepts and simplify them to the point of being executable? Like my definition of data science, right? Data, I had to simplify that because students would say, what is data science? And I don't want to spend three hours explaining what data science is. I want to explain it in 15 words or less, right? What's supervised versus unsupervised machine learning, right? I can explain that in four words. So you know what? That's, that's what I, it forces me to simplify. And when you do that, I think all the BS that gets in our way as technicians falls to the wayside. And now we're focused on the heart of what's important. That's awesome, Bill. I uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, and I, I just was going to reiterate. I mean, I think that's that's great, and it's crazy to me that you're saying that you're in these classes and you're teaching them, and people don't know what a data warehouse is. Uh, so, I mean, I, I kind of came. I, I, I guess I'm I'm on the edge of a millennial, I guess, uh, to Generation X. So, <laughs> but so um, I just kind of wrapping up. I know we're getting close to the uh, top of the hour here. Yes, oh, sorry. I wanted to ask. It's your fault. You got me all wound up. Let's shift gears. Let's, uh, Thomas, why don't you jump yeah. into rapid fire? That'd be awesome. Yeah. So but before we jump into rapid fire, I did want to ask one, just give you one, one more opportunity. So to the big data beard army out there, you're talking about, you know, you've got your big data MBA army. So we've got the big data beard army. A lot of, you know, we, we focus really on the data engineers and the technologists. We have some data scientists. What, what, would, what would your core message be to tell them why it's so important in their roles to be connected to these business outcomes? So I'm going to make a, a very gratuitous plug of my book, Big Data NBA. Uh, I wrote the Big Data NBA as my textbook for my class. It doesn't read like a textbook. It reads a little, hopefully a little better than a textbook. But it was really designed to really help people and organizations figure out how do I take advantage of data scientists, data science as a, as a monetization platform. And I start with that. And I think what you'll see very quickly is that when you focus in on the business outcomes, all the technology decisions you need to make, architecture decisions you need to make, data science decisions you need to make, they all become self-evident. I like to say, you know, if somebody walks to me and says, hey, Schmars, do I need to have Spark? My answer is going to be, I don't know. What are you trying to do? Right? What are you trying to do? Right? Do I need to have this? Do I need to have Lyota? Do I need to have Kafka? Right? Well, I don't know. What are you trying to do? And if we don't know what we're trying to do, if we don't begin with an end in mind to steal from Stephen Covey, then we're going to just wander lost in the desert. So it's, it's the understanding the business outcomes we're trying to drive. Not only does it make our, our, our technology, data engineering and data science jobs easier, but it makes it more relevant to the business. And then, by the way, as a data engineer, all of a sudden you become important to the business. You're not just some guy buried in the bowels of the organization playing with technology. You're now a key aspect of the company's ability to drive revenue and to monetize what they've got as assets. So make the shift. And I think you'll find the conversations you get involved in will change dramatically and they'll be a lot more fun. No, I, I agree. I mean, I've, I've read the book, but I, I can I can attest that, you know, as a data engineer or as a developer of any kind, once you can start explaining the problems and talking to, you know, the people above your pay grade, you become really more important. So that's that, that's a great book. And, you know, check check it out, especially if you're in a data engineer role. So, Bill, we're going to transition to the end, and we're rolling into our rapid-fire questions. And so these, these questions, we just have a set of questions. First thing that comes to your mind, you know, they're, they're meant to be fun and kind of you know, give us a little, little background on you, too. So 
I'm just going to start firing them off here. So the first one is what year will Skynet go online? So what year will the machines take over? Hmm. So I'm, I'm dubious that Skynet kicks in ever, but I would say if there was a point in time, it would be um, earlier versus later because we'd be no, more naive and would have built less. So I think we're most vulnerable probably from the years 2022, 2022. Okay. There you go, man. Wow. That's, Specific time frame, so I'll, I'll I'll be on the lookout. <laughs> so, if you were able to buy me one book, what would it book? What you know, what book would you recommend and buy for somebody? Just any book doesn't have to be a technology book. Just where, where's your head at with that? Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Okay, Bo- okay. book changed my life, and um, it really helped me to understand what it was that was important to me. Which, by the way, led me to teaching. Oh, great. What genre of music are you rocking out to? So when, when you're on a plane, when you're, you know, I, I know you're, I, th- I think you're a runner, right? So what kind of music are you listening to right now? What's your genre? So I, I, I like jazz, but I like big band jazz. I'm a Maynard Ferguson nut. Um, but I, I kind of like it all. I go everything from Jerry Reed to Aerosmith to ZZ Top. Um, I, I like a wide range of music. Okay. What's your favorite piece of useless tech? Oh, God, my my... Ah, my Apple Watch. <laughs> that's a, there's, been a, there's been a lot. Yes. Of, there's been a lot of votes for the Apple Watch on this thing, too. Which, and I'll be honest, it's the whole reason why I haven't bought one yet. <laughs> oh, I want one so bad. Yeah, I, you you'll struggle to find a good use for it. It does measure steps very well, and it tells you the temperature outside in case you don't want to step outside. But uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a runner too, and so I have a Garmin. But I'm like, oh, if I had the Apple Watch, and then maybe you know, <laughs> okay. What's your biggest money pit right now? Uh, my house. House. Yeah, we got to fix the kitchen, and the roof needs to be repaired. And yeah, I don't want to talk about it. And it's and it's, <laughs> and it's in California. Yeah. Yeah. Next question, please. Next question. <laughs> okay. Are you going any anywhere interesting soon? So I know you know I know you've got a leg in a boot right now, but do you have any trips or anything you're going to see? Do anything interesting? Yeah, I got I got a really cool end of the month. I'm going to Sacramento. I've been asked to speak to the state of California senior legislatures about big data um, and artificial intelligence and the ramification it's going to have on the state of California. So I'm running a oh, wow. two hour workshop there for, um, and I'm really jazzed about it because it's it's given me a chance to um, really rethink some aspects of the big data, AI, machine learning conversation from a from a different perspective. So I'm totally jazzed about that. Okay, great. And then last question, what show are you binging right now? Oh, Game of Thrones, season of Thrones. five. Oh, season five. I'm not sure if how, are you watching Game of Thrones? Yeah, I'm caught up right now. So I won't, I won't give you any spoilers or anything like that. Don't, don't, but I just, you know, season five, the first, you know, first seven episodes were so boring and so depressing. I kept turning off halfway through and kicking back on. And then the last episode was, you know, the the episode eight. I won't go into any, any more detail. I'll spoil it. But the whole season turned around. And I, by the way, I have a man crush on Jon Snow. <laughs> All right. By the way, you asked me earlier about my cane. Is there anything special in it? I got a Valerian sword in there. There you go. <laughs> oh, wow. The White walkers aren't going to get me. <laughs> well, hey, Bill, thanks so much for being on. It was awesome to have you. If folks wanted to catch up with you on social, what's the best places for us to follow you? So on Twitter, I'm at Schmarzo, S-C-H-M-A-R-Z-O. Easy to find me there. 
Um, I, I post quite a bit on LinkedIn. Um, the blogs I write, I write first appear on, uh, on the Dell EMC sites, but I always transport them over to LinkedIn. So you can also follow me there. Um, those are probably the two best places. I, I try to avoid Facebook because it's too political, but I do like LinkedIn and I do like Twitter. Well, everybody go out there, follow Bill. He's got great stuff. He's always posted a lot of different blog posts that'll help you learn, you know, the reason and the business behind big data. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Big Data Beard podcast. As a thank you, we'd like to offer you a 20% discount to attend O'Reilly's Stratadata or AI conferences. Use the link in our show notes to register or promo code PCBeard at checkout. And tune in to future episodes for a chance to win free passes to these amazing conferences. It would also be pretty cool if you reviewed us in your favorite podcast app. It really does help. Thanks for listening.